Good morning. Today's reading has been changed, so if you were thinking it was something other than this, it was. But anyway, today it's 2 Samuel 15, verses 1 to 18. Absalom's conspiracy. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, What town are you from? He would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel, that Gilanite, David's counsellor, to come from Gilah, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. David flees. A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household, following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out, with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with all the Kerithites and Pelopites and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath, marched before the king. attached to the kitchen fridge. It's called Children Learn What They Live. 
written by Dorothy Law Notty in the mid-1970s. It follows a basic pattern of describing what children live with and what they learn because of what they have lived. For example, if children live with honesty, they learn truthfulness. Another line of the poem is, if children learn with shame, they learn to feel guilty. The poem's pointing out that whatever children see around them, they often follow that model as adults. And for a lot of children, their modelling comes from their parents. For example, my relationship with my parents has shaped me. I can see how my skills in music, but also my tendency to avoid conflict, is connected to one or both of my parents. Our relationships with our parents shape us, often in both helpful and unhelpful ways, whether we like that fact or not. In our passage today, we see how the relationship King David has with his children shapes their lives. His sons inherit some of his characteristics and echo his sin. And the kingdom begins to fracture because of division between him and one of his sons. Previously in our series on 2 Samuel, we've seen the word of the Lord come to King David twice. Firstly, in covenant blessing, the promise that the Lord would establish a great kingdom for David, but also in punishment, in judgment. The Lord would bring punishment upon David and his family because of his great sin. We will need to keep both of those things in mind as we look at this passage today to understanding the events in our passage today. Ultimately, we'll see how the Lord's judgment and the Lord's blessing is both fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we consider God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. As we read it today, please help us to understand it. Help us to see how King David's story points us to the story of King Jesus. May we hear and obey your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have your Bible open as we work through the story. There's also an outline on your new sheet. As we're covering eight chapters, we'll be skimming over certain sections and zeroing in on important parts. You'll find it helpful if you follow along. The passage Nigel read for us is in the middle of our section today. And we'll look both backwards and forwards from that in the book. Chapter 15 records Absalom's rebellion and David's escape. But what caused Absalom to rebel against his father? We'll look backwards to see the reason in our first scene, David's sin echoed. Our second scene, which includes our reading, is of how Absalom's actions bring about some of the consequences of David's sin. And how will this father-son civil war end? We'll see that in our conclusion in the third scene, a bittersweet conclusion. Again, in 2 Samuel, we're going to see wicked deeds. If it was a movie, it would probably be rated R for sexual violence, for graphic battle violence, for sex scenes and a scene of suicide. It's an incredibly dark section of God's word. Scene one. David's sin echoed. In 2 Samuel chapters 13 to 14, we see a family drama with similarities to David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. Through this family drama, we see the reason for Absalom's rebellion against his father. 
We'll see the story through four of its characters, four of its five characters, Amnon, Tamar, Absalom, and David. Firstly, we meet passionate Amnon, David's eldest son, beloved and the most obvious heir to the throne. The narrator tells us that Amnon is in love with his beautiful sister Tamar, his half-sister, in chapter 13, verse 1. This first sentence sets a bleak tone for the scene. The heir to David's throne wants to commit incest, which was expressly forbidden in God's law. It also encourages us as the readers to doubt whether Amnon's feeling is actually love. The scene continues in verse 2, and the statements there confirm the real nature of Amnon's passion. He's consumed by his passion, he's made himself physically ill, and all he wants to do is use Tamar not relate to her. Through his cousin Jonadab's advice, wicked advice, Amnon devises a plan to satisfy his passion. That's passionate Amnon. Tamar is introduced in verse 8. Tamar is honourable. She's asked to cook food for Amnon, who is in bed sick. Amnon, however, is pretending to be sick. And when Tamar serves him food in verse 11, he grabs her and urges her to come to bed with him. Honourable Tamar pleads with Amnon to stop giving him good advice. In verses 12 to 13, Tamar reminds Amnon that incest is something God forbids his people to do. She urges him to think of the consequences for both of them. Finally, Tamar suggests that the king could formalise their relationship. Maybe they could get married. Though Tamar might have just been trying to distract him at that point. That's Tamar. Tamar's good advice falls on deaf ears. In his superior strength, Amnon rapes Tamar. In the aftermath, Amnon's passion turns to hate, verse 15, and he discards Tamar, throwing her out of his house. Tamar goes to her most trusted relative, her brother Absalom. Tamar hopes her brother will look after her. Look at his response to his distraught sister in verse 20 of chapter 13. Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. At first, Absalom seems perceptive. Amnon's evil character is probably common knowledge. And Absalom was able to work out what had happened. But Absalom is also insensitive here. He gives his sister shelter in his home, tries to offer her comfort, but he also silences her. Absalom is more focused on hating Amnon for his sin than comforting his sister in her despair. That's insensitive, Absalom. And finally, we see passive David, verse 21. When King David heard all this, he was furious. We see David's right response to the evil acts of rape and incest in anger. But that's where David's response ends. Contrary to the law he was expected to uphold as king, David does not cut off Amnon from his people. As a king, but more importantly as a father, David does not act. He does not punish his son Amnon, nor comfort his daughter Tamar. That's passive, David. Then the family drama narrows to focus primarily on Absalom and David. 
And we see some similarities with David's sin against Uriah. Absalom takes revenge on Amnon two years later by ordering his servants to assassinate him. Absalom then flees into hiding. David mourns for Amnon and is angry at Absalom, but he still does not act. In chapter 14, General Joab advises David to bring Absalom back, and David does, but in strange circumstances. There are two ways the king could have brought Absalom back. To be executed for murdering Amnon, or to be exonerated as Tamar's avenger. David does neither, bringing Absalom back to Jerusalem, but never to the palace. After two years of being back in Jerusalem and not seeing his father, Absalom gets impatient. In order to get what he wants, Absalom burns a field that his cousin Joab owns. Joab and David give in to Absalom, and he finally reconciles with the king, but in a formal and unemotional way. This scene looks back to David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. Amnon's rape of Tamar is very similar to David's violation of Bathsheba. Amnon's sin is like David's sin. Echoed, like father, like son, but worse. David coveted and stole another man's wife, but David's firstborn son has raped his own sister. Absalom's murder of Amnon is similar to David's murder of Uriah. Absalom's sin is like David's sin. Echoed, like father, like son, but worse. David ordered the murder of someone who stood in his way, but David's third-born son has ordered the killing of his own brother. To Samuel doesn't tell us why David is passive in these chapters, but because this story follows the Lord's judgment upon David's sin in chapter 12, we can make some pretty fair guesses. It is unsettling when parents realise their own flaws in their children. Amnon lusted just like his father. Absalom planned murder like his father. But how much more painful is it when parents see their own sins committed by their children? David is seeing history repeated. As a father, it is his responsibility to reprimand his children. Yet how many fathers do not do this for fear of being seen as hypocritical? If David got away with sin... How hypocritical would it be for him to punish his children for sinning? David's inaction is understandable, but not excusable. As both king and father, he should have acted in judgment. And David's failure to act leads to Absalom's rebellion in three stages. Absalom sees that his father has not punished Amnon, so he takes matters into his own hands. When David doesn't punish Absalom for killing Amnon, Absalom thinks he can do whatever he wants. And Absalom is confirmed in this belief when he is not punished for burning Joab's field, but given attention. Absalom learned what he lived. David's passive parenting has enabled Absalom to go down this path to rebellion. Yet more importantly, the Lord's word to David in judgment is being fulfilled in personal calamity and bloodshed. The Lord had told David that out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. This echo of David's sin with sickening rape and callous revenge is a horrific calamity. 
The Lord had also said to David, the sword will never depart from your house. This long-term consequence of David's sin has begun through the killing of one of his sons. The family at the centre of the kingdom is fractured. The Lord's judgment upon David continues. Scene two, the consequences of David's sin. In this scene, things get worse for David. More consequences for his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah come to pass. Absalom rebels against his father through a political campaign. While escaping in the wake of this rebellion, David accepts the Lord's word as judgment upon him. And the consequences intensify with sexual retribution and family bloodshed. Chapter 15 records Absalom's rebellion. In verses 1 to 12, it shows us Absalom's four-year political campaign against his father. He greets citizens in verse 2 of chapter 15. He responds to their complaints with election promises, verse 3. Absalom spreads disinformation about his opponent and nominates himself as a better replacement, in verse 4, and he presses the flesh, verse 5. The only thing missing is kissing babies. A preliminary result to this campaign is in verse 6. See it with me, chapter 15, verse 6. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king, asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. After this war for the people's hearts was won, Absalom prepared to be crowned king in verse 10, sending out spies to round up all the people of Israel for him. The irony in Absalom's political campaign, however, is that he probably didn't need to do this. After Amnon's death, and his reconciliation with his father, Absalom was probably next in line to the throne anyway. But Absalom doesn't want to wait for that. He wants to take the kingdom from his father. Once David hears about Absalom's plans, he flees from Jerusalem. Note the circumstances of him leaving in verse 16 of chapter 15. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. That detail about the concubines will be important later. As David leaves, he has an interaction with lots of people, including one of Saul's relatives called Shimei in chapter 16. Shimei curses David, accusing him of stealing Saul's throne. You might expect the king to punish Shimei for insulting him, but David responds differently. David says to him, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more then is this Benjaminite, this Shimei? Leave Shimei alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. David knows that everything happening to him is a consequence of his sin. Yet David has not forgotten the promise made to him of a great everlasting kingdom. David knows the word of the Lord will be fulfilled, whether it is bitter curse or sweet blessing, punishment or promise. And David will humbly accept the fulfilment of the word of the Lord in whatever form it takes. Now that David has escaped, Absalom moves into the king's city and the king's palace. Absalom then asks for advice about what to do next. His advisor, with a funny name, Ahithophel, 
gives him this advice in chapter 16, verse 21. Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father, and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. And so Absalom listens to Ahithophel's advice. He sleeps with his father's concubines on the roof of the palace, in a tent, and it's public, in the sight of all Israel. Once again, we see the Lord's judgment fulfilled, this time in sexual retribution. The Lord has said to David, before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. The one close to David we see is his son Absalom, and Absalom has slept with them in public. David committed sexual sin, and so Absalom brings sexual retribution against him. The Lord's word of judgment is fulfilled. This scene ends with the armies of David and Absalom meeting. You can read about the battle in chapter 18, verses 7 to 8. David's army wins. General Joab brutally kills Absalom when he's stuck in a tree. And this is against the orders of David. David wanted to bring Absalom home. When the battlefield report reaches David, the messenger emphasizes how David's enemies have been defeated. And tries not to let on that the king's son is dead. But David is shaken. In chapter 18, verse 33, David mourns. Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David is despairing. In bloodshed, the Lord's word of judgment is fulfilled. The Lord had said to David, the sword will never depart from your house. And this consequence of David's sin has continued with the killing of another of his sons. The Lord's word of judgment is being fulfilled. Last scene, scene three, a bittersweet conclusion. In this final scene, we see the Lord's word being fulfilled again, but now the Lord's word of covenant blessing. In the wake of Absalom's death, the kingdom is restored to David. The people of Judah reinstall David as king in chapter 19. But the men of Israel take a little bit longer. In chapter 20, one of Saul's relatives, a man called Sheba, tries to use the aftermath of Absalom's rebellion to gain power. General Joab, however, brings a swift end to that. The Lord's word of covenant blessing is fulfilled in the death of David's enemies and the restoration of the kingship. The Lord had said to David, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Though it looked like Absalom and Sheba might have taken the kingdom, both of them are now defeated. The Lord had also said to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Though David's sons died and it looked like he might have lost the throne, the kingship was restored to him. It's a bittersweet conclusion to these eight chapters, isn't it? David is reinstalled as king, but at what cost? His family and the kingdom are fractured. David has lost three children. Amnon, dead. Absalom, dead. And Tamar is confined to her house. Soldiers have died. Concubines are being dishonoured. 
Ahithophel, the advisor, he hung himself and Sheba was beheaded. This bittersweet conclusion is the result of the Lord's word being fulfilled, of both bitter curse and sweet blessing. The sin of David and his children was ugly and despicable, and so rightly were the consequences to that sin. But the Lord's promise of covenant blessing was not replaced by the punishment. It continued. We've seen both the promise and the punishment fulfilled. This bittersweet conclusion for King David points to the bittersweet nature of Jesus' death. The Lord's word of both judgment and blessing, of punishment and promise, find fulfilment in Jesus' death. Jesus' cruel death on the cross demonstrates both God's wrath upon human sinfulness and his love for his creation. The holy Lord God can only respond to the great ugliness of sin in wrath. But God's great wrath is satisfied through Jesus' sacrificial death. God's judgment on all sin is being borne by Jesus. We see in the book of Romans that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. That is, he bore God's wrath in our place through the shedding of his blood. The bitter curse of death that Jesus suffered fulfills the Lord's word of judgment. Our Father God, who lovingly created us, does not stop loving us when we sin. God's great love is demonstrated through Jesus' death. For God so loved the world, He gave his only son. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see both God's love and wrath, promise and punishment. And when you accept Jesus' sacrifice for your sin, you are set free from the curse of sin. And you become a follower of King Jesus. So how are we to live as a follower of King Jesus in light of our story? As followers of King Jesus, we all have the responsibility to flee from sin and repent when we do sin. But when we do not realise our wrongdoing or do not say sorry for our sin, our Christian family has the responsibility to speak to us about our sin. Jesus said, If your brother or sister sins... Go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. In our story today, there were characters who did not go to their relatives and point out their fault. Absalom did not point out his brother Amnon's sin, but seethed in anger until killing him. Joab did not point out his cousin Absalom's sin of burning his field, but gave in to his demands. As followers of King Jesus, we are to look out for our Christian family. But notice the way we are to do that, privately, just the two of you, and the purpose of winning them over. We shouldn't call it out in public, and we shouldn't do it so that we feel bigger or we feel better. When your brother or sister in Christ sins and they do not deal with it themselves, we need to go and point out their fault privately and in a way that wins them back. As followers of King Jesus, we all have the responsibility to rebuke our brothers and sisters 
but especially for those who are parents. In our story today, we saw King David fail as a father. He did not reprimand his son Amnon for his sin. He did not comfort his daughter. And he did not reprimand his son Absalom in all his sins. One of the Old Testament books of wisdom, Proverbs, says this about a parent's responsibility. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish them with the rod, they will not die. Punish them with the rod and save them from death. God's word instructs parents to discipline their children. This verse has often been used to justify physical discipline of children. But I don't think that's what the verse is specifically saying. What's important is that punishment, whether physical or not, is discipline that helps children as they grow to understand how to live in the world, as they grow to live as followers of Jesus. For example, when I was a child, about 12, and I used some foul language, my parents washed my mouth out with soap. It was disgusting. But it helped me understand that the way I talk to people shows whether I respect them or not. Parents, you might agree or disagree with each other how to discipline your children. But please listen to God's word when it says that you need to discipline. Be warned by David's example. His passive influence did not help his children grow to understand how to live in the world. Though children make their own choices, they learn what they live. Children's relationship with their parents shapes them. Take heart by our Heavenly Father's example, who disciplines those he loves. God chastens everyone he accepts as his son. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Parents who are followers of Jesus have the responsibility to rebuke their children, to lovingly discipline them for their good. Today we've looked at a terrible story where David's sin is echoed by his children and the consequences for his sin come to pass. The Lord's word of both judgment and covenant blessing are fulfilled in this bittersweet way, both promise and punishment. And the greatest instance of the Lord's judgment and covenant blessing is in the cross of Jesus, where the bitter curse of death is destroyed and the sweet blessing of new life is given. As followers of King Jesus, we need to lovingly rebuke our brothers and sisters in their sin and parents especially with their children. Simon is going to lead us in prayer. Let's respond in prayer. Father God, we ask that you would continue to do your work of shaping us into the image of your Son, painful though that is at times, through your Word and through your Spirit. Continue to convict us of the sin in our lives. Don't allow us to ignore you when you speak to us in that way, when you reveal those things we have done or are doing that dishonour you, that grieve you. Humble us before you. Convict us and enable us to repent. Might our repentance be genuine and heartfelt. Help us to turn away 
from our selfishness, our pride, our greed, our hatred, our laziness, all of those things in our lives that dishonour you, that grieve you. Help us to change, we pray. And help us to learn how to help each other in that, how to give and receive correction. Give us the humility that we need when someone points out and exposes sin in our own lives. And Father, as we seek to correct each other, we pray that we do that with the right attitude, not out of some sense of self-righteousness, but out of love and concern for each other, have a genuine desire to see one another mature as your children, to see our brothers and sisters restored. Give us wisdom as we seek to do that, to know when to speak, when to remain silent. Father, give us the courage we need to speak when we must. We recognise too that we are flawed and imperfect, all of us. But your word is not. And so we thank you for the privilege that it is to be used by you, to be called your co-workers, that you use people like us to build up your kingdom and your church. Through these flawed human instruments, you continue to bring people the good news about your son. Through our often imperfect and inadequate love, you still reveal your love to others. So Father, Help us to recognise the responsibility that comes with being your people, that we work hard in serving you and in serving each other, trusting that you will be a work in and through us for the glory of your Son. We ask it in his name. Amen.